0: This is a presentation of IRS Circular 230, an update. This presentation is based on a continuing education presentation made for the Arizona Society of Certified Public Accountants tax section at a luncheon held on September 20th, 2005. This presentation is presented by the Arizona Society of CPAs, website www.ascpa.com. The presentation deals with the new rules that impact Circular 230 and the new Circular 230 rules that came out and became effective this June, as well as an update on other Circular 230 items that are applicable to those in tax practice. I am Ed Zollers, a CPA in Phoenix with a local public accounting firm here. And I'm going to discuss how this applies to CPAs in general and how it may impact your work as a certified public accountant and the areas you need to be concerned about. The materials are available for download at the Ed Zoller's Tax Update website. As well, we will have copies of the slides used in the presentation for the Arizona Society Tax Section Lunch will also be available for you to refer to during this particular presentation. Today's presentation is going to break down into a few basic areas. We're going to start with Circular 230 and how Circular 230 in general impacts the CPA. We'll then move on to the subpart B recent changes. These are the areas that got much of the uh, attention in recent months from CPAs, much of the concerns from CPAs involving the changes the IRS made in this area. There were significant changes made in the area of Tax shelter opinions was where the change was coming, but this tax shelter opinion may be broader than we first thought it was going to be. As well, there are applications to various areas of practice here, including some areas where you may have thought there would be no application of Circular 230. That is, you may be in tax practice, even if you don't believe you are in tax practice, at least as far as the Internal Revenue Service is concerned. We'll also talk about subpart C. That's the teeth of Circular 230, basically where Circular 230 gets its sanctions and the issues of what the sanctions mean. As well, if we have time at the end of the presentation, we'll talk about some other Circular 230 issues that may impact the tax certified public accountant. Now, Circular 230 governs practice before the Internal Revenue Service. And a key question that we have to get into immediately is, what is practice? Well, practice is defined in Circular 230 at Regulation Section 10.2D. Practice is limited to those specifically authorized to practice. This goes back to historical issues that impacted representation for the Internal Revenue Service all the way back in the 19th century, And Congress established a list of those people who would be allowed to represent taxpayers in issues before the Internal Revenue Service in order to help reduce some of the frauds and problems that were taking place at that time. Now, this list basically works on a who's in. There are two classes that are written in by default, and there is then the rest of the class is everybody else is out unless they qualify going through an examination mode or through qualifications with employment with the Internal Revenue Service and meeting certain standards, those are going to be the areas where people can represent taxpayers outside in front of the Internal Revenue Service in issues in front of them. Most of Circular 230 was revised in 2002, but the IRS reserved a certain area dealing with tax shelter opinions. These revisions were released late last year, and they're the 2005 revisions that took a place this June. Two key areas were covered here. We had the tax shelter opinion revisions, plus we had the IRS added a best practices provision. What is the CPA's authority to practice before the IRS? Well, as we all are aware, a CPA license is granted by each of the various states, uh, as well as territories and any other jurisdiction such as the District of Columbia. Those people become CPAs, that is a state-level designation. However, Title V, United States Code, Section 500C, grants the rights to practice before the IRS to any individual who is qualified to practice as a CPA in any state. So that means by virtue of being licensed by the state of Arizona or any other state, You are federally recognized as someone who can represent a taxpayer before the Internal Revenue Service. You can practice before the IRS. Now, this federal grant of power is also granted in broad scope to two other classes. First, attorneys. Attorneys are granted their rights to practice before the IRS based on the same concept as certified public accountants you are in by the very nature that the state bar recognizes you as an attorney in the state, whatever state you are in. If you are in and you're a member of the bar, you are allowed to come in. Now you're in until you're thrown out by the IRS. The IRS does have the right to discipline attorneys and certified public accountants. And even if their state licensing remains intact, they can be barred or otherwise sanctioned for practice before the IRS and limited in that practice. Now, for those individuals who don't hold either position, and recently, even for those who do, a third option is to become an enrolled agent. An enrolled agent is a purely federal license, and that is granted to individuals under one of two methods, one dealing with employment with the IRS, if you've been, if you had worked there long enough, and you are considered to have sufficient experience you can become an enrolled agent without having to pass the exam if you are if you are not do not have that background you have to pass a rather comprehensive exam on taxation issues and then you can become an enrolled agent those three classes have the right to represent taxpayers before the IRS now a CPA's authority is subject to IRS regulation. That's authorized in Title V, 5, Section 500 at D2, authorizes the IRS to regulate the IRS. The detailed authorization is found at Title 31 of the United States Code Section 330, and that's in fact where the regulations under Circular 230 come from. This allows the Treasury Department to regulate those practicing before the IRS and specifically indicates that the Treasury can remove the right to practice for cause. An individual who is barred from practice before the Internal Revenue Service cannot be insisted by those who are not barred. If you assist somebody or basically enable them to practice before the IRS, even though they have been barred, so you're kind of working or covering for them, That is a violation of circular 230 in and of itself and can subject the person who is assisting in evading the punishment, uh, subject them to their own separate punishment under circular 230. Now, CPAs are still subject to other standards. While the IRS regulates tax practice, that's not an exclusive grant of regulation. First, The Arizona State Board of Accountancy has the rules over Arizona CPAs and the basic rules. Remember, if you are a CPA and you are not an enrolled agent, your authority to practice before the IRS exists only so long as the Arizona State Board of Accountancy, if that's the only state you are licensed with, says you are a certified public accountant. If they pull your right to practice in Arizona, that has the effect of instantly pulling your right to practice at the federal level. So the Arizona Board of Accountancy still retains the right to regulate your conduct. You are subject to the laws and regulations. Chapter 6 of Title 32 of the Arizona Revised Statutes contains the Arizona Accountancy Law. Generally, the Arizona State Board of Accountancy recognizes under the regulations the AICPA standards. Two key sets of standards that will impact you on tax matters is the Code of Professional Ethics, which impacts everything a CPA has to do, and the Statements on Standards for Tax Services. Now, the SSTSs, back in the old days, used to be the Statements of Responsibilities on Tax Practice, and some old-timers may remember that the AICPA level, when they were the Statements of Responsibility on Tax Practice, they were deemed advisory not necessarily binding for disciplinary purposes at the ICPA level. Two key issues. One, the state of Arizona was actually a rarity as I understand it, either the only state or one of only two states, to actually recognize those as enforceable standards. So in Arizona, despite the fact the AICPA, who published these statements of responsibilities on tax practice, said at the time they weren't enforceable, you couldn't have disciplinary action based on them, the Arizona State Board, nevertheless, said you could. So that was a different issue there, but in, that was recently changed when it became the statements on standards for tax services. The AICPA recognized them now as being enforceable standards, so at the AICPA level they are enforceable. What that means is you have to follow these standards regardless of how you look at it, and it doesn't matter if you are or aren't a member of the AICPA. As well, the Arizona State Board of Accountancy requires a CPA who is suspended or disbarred by the IRS to report that suspension or disbarment to the State Board of Accountancy under Rule R4-1-456A1. If you're disciplined by the IRS, at least in the suspension or disbarment, you must notify the Arizona State Board of Accountancy. Now, under Circular 230, the IRS now has a third option, that is to censure the individual. As of the moment, it doesn't appear that you're required to notify the state board if you are censured. However, it's probably reasonable to believe they might find out. And again, the state board may become interested in the actions that caused you to be subject to federal discipline and may decide to render their own discipline in a case like that. But again, you must comply Arizona State Board level regulation comes in addition to the IRS regulation. So what that means is you must comply with both standards, and if one standard is stricter than the other, you follow the stricter standard. Hopefully you won't run into many cases where the two standards are contradictory and you can't fulfill both. But that is always possible, and if you run to that case, the only thing I can say is that obviously if the state board pulls your license, you've lost your right to practice for the IRS. So if you have to violate one of the two, my theory would always be uh, if you have to follow, I should say, one of the two, and they're contradictory, you would follow the state board rules because if you don't follow theirs, you'll be out in both cases anyway. Now let's talk about the basic structure of Circular 230. Circular 230 is divided into five subparts, and each of those subparts deal with basic, a broad area. Subpart A talks about the basic authority to practice, and has a bunch of definitional provisions of what is practice, who has authority, has a lot of that area. Subpart B has the standards of conduct and performance. Subpart B is what we're going to concentrate on today because that's a major issue we need to worry about in today's presentation, where the major changes have been made. Subpart C contains the sanctions that the IRS can apply and tells you what's sanctionable, what your issue, what your problems are, and what could happen to you if you are sanctioned. Subpart D contains the rules for disciplinary proceedings. If you're hauled before the Office of Professional Responsibility and they start a proceeding, that's where the rules will govern how that proceeding moves forward. Subpart E has general provisions, kind of a cleanup area in Circular 230. In today's session, we will touch briefly on subpart A, discussion of those areas applicable in general to CPAs to define the breadth of Circular 230, We'll spend much more time in subpart B, especially the areas that were affected this year by changes, that is, the covered opinion area, and the area of other written advice, and the best practices area. Subpart C, the sanctions we will talk about in terms of the impact, we will not really deal with subparts D&E. However, anyone in practice before the IRS or who is a federally authorized tax practitioner Basically, falls into one of those three categories. Should have available and should have looked at Circular 230 itself. The Circular 230 in whole can be downloaded from the IRS website. In fact, it's fairly simple to get. You go to the IRS Forms and Publications page. Basically, go to the IRS main page, click Forms and Publications. When you go to the current year's publications, the first one listed is Circular 230. Download that PDF file and print it out. We have put in the materials for today's session a copy of Subpart B of Circular 230. So you can refer to that section. When we talk about provisions, you can refer to that section and take a look at it in there. But all of Subpart B is in today's materials. The other parts were not reproduced for space purposes. However, you should go get that document and have a copy of it available, especially if you are full-time in tax practice. And perhaps, as we'll discuss, maybe even if you aren't, because it does have application where you might presume it didn't. Let's talk about the basics here of subpart B. Basically, it was an area of recent major changes. Had a number of recently revised areas. Section 10.33 is Best Practices. Section 10.35 has the covered opinion requirements. Now, that has generated much heat. Section 10.36 are the required procedures to ensure compliance. This is the firm-level requirement, which can cause an individual to be responsible for the actions of everybody under him in the firm or everybody who he supposedly is supervising in the firm. And 10.37 is other written advice which is a provision that catches everything that doesn't go under 10.35. There was also a significant 2002 revision in Section 10.29 on conflicts of interest. Now, Section 10.33, the best practices section, let's talk about that one for a second. It's an aspirational standard was the term that the IRS used when they published this. And many people tuned it out as soon as they heard that. Aspirational meant that we are not going to discipline you for this. And in fact, Section 10.52A1 actually removes this provision from the enforcement rules for now. For right now, a violation of 10.33 is not something for which you can be disciplined by the IRS. However, I would warn you that it takes a very minor change to Section 10.52A1 to remove one phrase, and suddenly it's actionable. So beware. That's why I say for now it's not there. Many commentators see this as a warning to the professional community. The IRS is suggesting to CPAs and attorneys, it's time to clean up your act yourselves, or we're going to do it for you. So the IRS is threatening to come down on the tax professionals who do tax practice if they believe there continues to be abuses or shortfalls in this area. So they're saying we want to see some standards and we'll give you a chance to come out with them. But if you don't, here's where we're going. Finally, these are important even if you don't buy into the theory that the IRS is threatening to come in and do this anyway and make it mandatory down the line because it will become, I do believe, a standard of care in malpractice cases involving tax practitioners. If a taxpayer client is harmed and ends up with a problem and is disappointed in a result. And that happens from time to time. Taxpayers generally get upset when they owe tax. They may get very upset if they owe tax and they weren't expecting to owe tax, and get extremely upset if they believe that a practitioner failed to inform them they were going to owe this tax. They may turn around and look at the best practices provision, And use that as the basis for filing a claim against the practitioner by claiming that the industry standards, as outlined in Section 10.33, required them to do X. They didn't do X. That is, by definition, substandard work. They were damaged by the substandard work. Therefore, they should be made whole. So you need to be aware of these provisions, even if you don't need to worry about the Office of Professional Responsibility coming down next month and basically disciplining you for failing to follow these procedures. You may find that there are other individuals, such as malpractice attorneys, who will be perfectly willing to discipline you for failing to follow these provisions. So let's be aware. Now, best practices are defined in 10.33 as compliance with all other parts of Circular 230 and meeting four performance standards. The first standard is that you must communicate clearly with the client regarding the terms of the engagement. To fulfill this responsibility, you must determine the client's expected purpose in obtaining the device and how it will be used. Why did the client ask for this advice? Do you understand what's going on and why the client's concerned? Secondly, you must establish a clear understanding with the client regarding this service of advice. Now, how do you prove you established that clear understanding? Well, if you're in court and the client says he thought you were going to do X and you didn't, the only way you're going to be able to show that you never agreed to do X, most likely, is to have a written engagement letter that made it clear you wouldn't do X. Therefore, this best practice is standard. While it doesn't come out and explicitly say so, basically comes down on if you have not been getting written engagement letters, it would be a really good idea to start getting them now. Because best practices suggest that without a written engagement letter, you may have a very, very difficult time defending yourself against a charge in a malpractice case because the best practice says you should have established a clear understanding. So if there's a misunderstanding, it's your fault because as a professional, you are required to make sure there was a clear understanding. The second standard under the best practices, there are methods established for evaluation of facts and the law. Now, this is an interesting standard because you're going to see much of this duplicated in the covered opinion standards. So what we're seeing here is the covered opinion standards will apply to hopefully a subset. Depends on which day of the week you talk to the IRS as to whether it is or isn't a subset or how broad it is. But at least theoretically applies to a subset of what we do. What this would apply, though, to when this best practices became applicable across the board would be to all of our practice. And much of what we see here is basically the principles that the best, that the covered opinion standard comes down on. You must uh, for evaluations of the facts in the law, you need to establish what are the facts. Make sure you clearly understand what the facts are. Determine which facts are relevant. Which things do you need to know to make the call on this advice? You must evaluate the reasonableness of any assumptions or representations. You can't just, you've got to at least look. You've got to have your eyes open for the idea that maybe these things aren't reasonable. No matter, you know, the client tells you something that you really believe is false, or you happen to have a very difficult time understanding how it could be true, uh, maybe you need to evaluate that much more critically than just accepting what the client tells you for purposes of giving this advice. You must relate the law to the facts, including judicial doctrines that might be applicable to your case. For instance, things like a business purpose requirement, a step transaction situation, You must evaluate that in addition to the pure letter of the law. You must evaluate the judicial doctrines that have come across in tax cases. And finally, you must arrive at a conclusion based on the facts and law. Standard 3 deals with how you advise the client. You must inform the client of the import of the conclusions you have reached specifically need to advise a client about whether they will be able to avoid accuracy related penalties under the Internal Revenue Code if the taxpayer relies on the advice. Now, this is a theme we're going to revisit, but note this is a general rule, not something that only applied to covered opinions. And also, note one other important factor, because this is something a lot of people are focusing on in the other rules we're going to discuss. These rules never say we're talking about written advice. For best practices, all advice is in here. So the best practices would suggest that even if nothing was written, you should have taken this step even for oral advice. So be careful. While the rules in the covered opinion area and the written advice area only apply to written documents, The best practices standard applies to all advice, even if not written. Standard number four, fairness and integrity. You must act with fairness and integrity, and this applies to all parties that you interact with, not just the client. You must act with fairness and integrity with regard to the Internal Revenue Service and their representatives. You're not allowed to basically pull fast ones there. You're supposed to be open and honest with all parties. Now, violating that one is generally a problem under other provisions of Circular 230, but just in case, it's a best practice for this purpose. There is a responsibility inside the firm to ensure the best practices are followed. The person with the primary responsibility for overseeing the firm's tax advice practice is responsible under the best practices standards for implementing the best practices. Now, note, we're going to see this repeated in the covered opinion area and in the area of written advice. This particular structure, there is the responsible individual in the firm. Now, there's a problem with this. If you're not a sole practitioner in public practice or you're not the controller in your company who has nobody else in the accounting staff, it may not be clear who exactly is this person that's responsible for this? There may not be clearly defined standards for who's responsible, or the standards may be a bit confused. It may be that everybody does some of this. Uh, It may be that while one person's involved with this mainly in your what you consider your tax area, other people may be rendering tax advice that aren't under this person's supervision in the areas over when they're performing financial planning engagements or when they're doing business valuations, which may be a whole nother part of your firm that the tax person's not, not, does not directly interact with. If that's the case, then it's tough to know how this works if it has to be a person or whether we're going to find multiple people subject to circular 230 discipline. But essentially, if you are supervising tax opinions of any sort, and we'll find the tax-written advice is very broad, you could come under this rule either here, which right now is non-enforceable, or more troublesome when we get to the written advice and covered opinions, you may be under it there, and that's a much more serious problem. Let's go on to Section 10.35, the covered opinion requirements. These have generated the most heat from these new regulations. And the major concern is how broadly these rules might apply. There are types of written documents that fall under the rules. And these rules may, as written, impact CPAs who don't see themselves as being in tax practice. For instance, CPAs performing financial planning activities may be subject to these rules, even though they don't think of themselves as tax practitioners at this point. As well, those who do business valuations, especially business valuations for things like family-limited partnerships that are used for gifting purposes, may be very, very much under these rules, and yet they might not consider themselves in tax practice. Circular 230 is going to run into these problems. They're going to run into these areas. Here's the problem. Who is covered by the rules? The regulations tell us the who. And the who is a practitioner, key phrase, who provides a covered opinion, also defined phrase, shall comply with these standards. So if you are a practitioner, then you've got to worry about what's a covered opinion. Well, practitioner doesn't just mean a person who calls themselves in tax practice or a person who says I issue tax opinions or a person who says I do tax work in my firm. I'm in the tax portion of my firm. Rather, it's defined under federal law who is a practitioner. In the circular, it tells us a practitioner is an individual described in Section 10.2E of Circular 230. Now you bounce there and it bounces you like many things in federal law and regulations, you end up bouncing another place. You go there, you're referred to section 10.3 A, B, C, or D. Now 10.3 B is the key. 10.3 B tells us a practitioner is any CPA not currently under suspension or disbarment by the IRS. Well, here's your problem. You're in. If you are licensed CPA, You look down, your certificate says you are a CPA, you're authorized to practice in the state. In Arizona, if you are a CPA, you're authorized to practice, basically. You know, Arizona doesn't maintain a dual licensing concept. We maintain a single licensing concept. Uh, And most states now are single licensing. So most time, if you are a CPA, you're in, uh, unless the IRS has thrown you out. So unless you were thrown out by the IRS, you're under disbarment or suspension, and you probably would remember if that happened. Uh, you're in and you are a practitioner. So the question becomes not whether you're a practitioner, whether you're a practitioner, you are. The question now becomes, are you issuing something that could be called a covered opinion? That's a different problem. Now, some people go and try to say, well, no, 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 no. Circular 230 governs practice before the IRS and Practice before the IRS means representing people in audits and I don't do that. Well that's fine, but that's not really what the definition says. It implies it in some places, but then it also comes back and makes it very clear it applies to others. I think it's also clear that the 10.35 regulations are aimed at cases and situations that took place, take place well before an examination and well before anybody's going before the IRS. And the individuals they were aiming at in these cases are individuals who most likely never represented the taxpayers in question in an exam situation. Rather, they were people turning out opinions that were relied upon by taxpayers to file returns in marketed opinion situations. In those marketed situations, it is highly unlikely that that particular person who wrote the opinion ever went in and or at least for sure did not go in and represent every one of these taxpayers and for certain didn't represent them before the opinion was written. So by the time they would have represented them, even if they did, it would have been well after the opinion that is now going to be covered by these rules would have been written. So I believe it is uh, wishful thinking to believe that you somehow can escape this because I don't do audits or I don't prepare tax returns. That won't get you out of these rules. So, we're all CPAs. The only out is that what we're doing is not a covered opinion. Now, first rule, what's a covered opinion? Now we get to that definition. All written advice potentially is in. Note, the regulation tells us that written advice includes electronic communications. That means letters, faxes. Emails, instant messages, all are written communications and as written communications, they may be covered opinions. Be careful that informal email you're shipping off may have subjected you to problems under Circular 230 because you dealt with a matter that should have been a covered opinion. You failed to comply with all the standards. Everything that is written could be a covered opinion. Now, a covered opinion is written advice, making the broad definition we talked about, concerning at least one federal tax issue. That's another term we'll talk about, what that means. And it has to fall into one of the following categories. It has to be a listed transaction, involving a listed transaction. The written advice has to involve a principal purpose transaction. Or the listed advice has to be, or the opinion, the written advice has to be about an entity, plan, or arrangement, and the opinion must be either a reliance opinion, a marketed opinion, given to the client under a condition of confidentiality, or given to the client with contractual protection. If it falls into any one of those categories, of those six categories, it is a covered opinion. Now, first question is, we have the first big term, what's a federal tax issue? That's defined at 10.35B3. A federal tax issue is an item that concerns the federal tax treatment of an item of income, an amount of gain or loss, a deduction, a credit, the existence of or absence of a taxable transfer, or the value of property for federal tax purposes. I know there's been a lot of concern in the business valuation community about these standards. Well, the problem is now we just seem to have another shoe drop. You're a CPA. Okay, I was potentially in. Well, my report is written. Yep, it's written. Okay. And it concerns the value of property for federal tax purposes. Well, I'm quoting the old revenue rule and get myself in here. Uh, I think I know it's for federal tax purposes it's a valuation so right now you can see we're beginning to mark off the check boxes going down the line so from the business valuation standpoint where I know I've had concerns expressed to be in this area we so far haven't found an out under this list we'll keep going but if you start keep looking this is not looking good as we move forward A federal tax issue is, as you probably noticed, an exceedingly broad coverage. Almost everything a CPA deals with that involves taxes in any way, shape, or form, even tangentially involves taxes, will become a federal tax issue. Now, the key part is we go to the next step, a significant federal tax issue, because many of our items are triggered by the fact it needs to be a significant federal tax issue. A significant federal tax issue is defined as one of those items remember that list we had of all those things that would be a tax issue where the IRS has a reasonable basis for a successful challenge of the position and that resolution could have a significant impact whether beneficial or adverse and under any reasonably foreseeable circumstance on the overall federal tax treatment of the transaction or matter under consideration. So we have to take a look at that rule. Do we have a position the IRS could reasonably, has a reasonable possibility of challenging? Now, reasonable basis is an area of concern. The IRS has an issue here under Section 6662, the CPA community has generally interpreted reasonable basis for a position of being substantially less than a 50% chance a position is right. Remember, we have issues about do we have a reasonable basis for taking a position, and reasonable basis is not more likely than not. That's a higher standard, but it's a standard that's greater than frivolous, somewhere greater than frivolous, but somewhere less and more likely than not. And in fact, Kip Dellinger in an article referenced in the materials, uh, tells, you know, talked about the idea that we've looked at traditionally maybe a 15 to 20 percent chance of success being a reasonable basis of success for penalty protection purposes under section 6662. If you reverse that, then we'd be saying, does the IRS have a 15 to 20 percent chance of prevailing against your position, meaning, You could have a position that is 80% chance of being right, and yet you may still have a significant federal tax issue because the IRS has a reasonable basis for challenging. Not that they are going to succeed. They don't have to be more likely than not to succeed in the challenge. There just needs to be a reasonable basis. Add to that another point. If the IRS has actually challenged the position, it is doubtful the IRS will ever tell you they had no reasonable basis for doing it. It's a little difficult to see them admitting that. Uh, so therefore, by definition, almost if the IRS could raise it in audit, no matter how off the wall, uh, it may it probably rises to a significant federal tax issue. That creates some real problems because it suggests it could be a very low bar to cover. If you interpret this broadly, it could involve almost every written document a CPA works on, unless we focus on one item that has not been focused on as much. A listed transaction basically is the only type of item listed that does not require a partnership or other entity, any investment plan or arrangement, that term is seen. Now, what does that mean? That language came from the penalty provision in 6662 D.C. to Little I. And we find that in there when the Congress talks about the penalties on tax shelters. And for that purpose of that penalty, we have generally not taken a hugely broad view that everything in the world is a tax shelter. Rather, we've generally looked at that provision as giving us an out that in fact, unless you had a proposed transaction, basically a scheme, a setup, whatever you want to call it, but something being marketed as proposed to go forward and being kind of sold, we never interpreted that as a tax shelter under 6662. But under Circular 230, many now in the analyses we are seeing are giving these much broader meaning. The question becomes, were we wrong all those years in 66, 62 and everything should have been a tax shelter and there was no way to get out of penalties because everything was a tax shelter and you had to meet a much higher standard to avoid the penalties. Or in fact, are, is the meaning the same? Is that old meeting still correct? And in fact, these rules would not apply to anything that would not meet that tax shelter definition. At least the covered opinion rule would not, would not apply. Tough to know. Kip Dellinger makes a pretty good argument for it in the article referenced. I will note that I believe this is probably a reasonable way to look at it, but I will also note that there's a lot of controversy in the area, and clearly it's not a position that is anywhere near unanimous that this applies to only a limited subset that would require that type of deed transaction or marketed transaction style or approach To trip the covered opinion rules. At least that certainly is not what most practitioners seem to be interpreting at this point. But we will move on. You need to make your own call in that area. Let's go into those specific types of things that have to be covered, that have to have covered opinions. First, let's deal with the listed transaction. Now, a listed transaction is defined at Regulation 1.6011-4B. And the IRS regularly publishes a list of these. That's why they're listed. You will find them on the IRS website. They're not the easiest to find. But if you do a search in the search box for listed transactions, you'll eventually stumble across the IRS webpage that has the list, which is subject to update at any time, can be changed all the time. A key problem, though, is not just that list of transactions, which is in and of itself long, but the problem is that any transaction that is, quote, substantially similar, unquote, is also a listed transaction, and we are told in that regulation that we are to interpret substantially similar very broadly. Now, that raises a whole set of problems that we could have a lot of transactions that could potentially be listed, and if they are listed, could potentially require a covered opinion. Now, the topic is, what is a listed transaction? It was covered in a presentation I made for the Arizona Forum for Improvement of Taxation that if you're interested in going through what is a listed transaction and how does it get there, and some of the ones you need to be concerned about for clients for local tax and accounting firms that we need to worry about because our clients may be involved in them, uh, you can get the podcast from that presentation to the Arizona Forum for Improvement Taxation. It's on my podcast website at http colon slash slash com. And you can take that Arizona Forum for Transactions. It is called the $100,000 Problem. Uh, there's a whole set of neat problem rules there. But you can download that, download the materials for that presentation, and we'll have a discussion as to what is a listed transaction. But just be aware, there are transactions your client may have been involved in, involving things like 412i plans, involving things like Roth IRAs that invested in fancy side businesses or regular IRAs that invested in a side business, uh, which seems to be incredibly popular these days. A lot of people seem to want to do that to try to get real estate into their IRA. Uh, Those may be substantially similar to items that are on the listed transaction list. So you probably need to watch. If you have a listed transaction, uh, you have another problem here. Note. Many of you have probably heard, and we're going to discuss the opt-out language. Opt-out does not work for a listed transaction. The opt-out language, the disclaimer you're seeing all over the place, is utterly useless if it's a listed transaction. You cannot opt out when providing advice on a listed transaction. The only way to avoid a covered opinion under a listed transaction is going to be under the just say no rule that we're going to cover later. And what just say no is very strict. You can give no assurance of any sort at any level, not just more likely than not any level about these items. Or if you do, then you have a covered opinion. So realize that, the just say no rule is very strict and difficult. If you have a listed transaction, it's going to be much more difficult to avoid having to give a covered opinion if you give written advice on that transaction, short of telling the client don't do it. The second big class and nasty class is the principal purpose transaction. Again, like the listed transactions, opt out does not work. You cannot opt out of a covered Opinion on a list, on a principal purpose transaction. Now, a principal purpose transaction is a transaction whose principal purpose is the avoidance or evasion of any federal tax. Not just income tax, any federal tax, like estate and gift, for instance. Avoidance is a very broad category. It covers all levels of tax. It was not accidental that the wording was avoidance or evasion. They were making clear that it may not have to be something that turns out to be quote-unquote illegal or smells funny. Any transaction whose principal purpose is to reduce federal tax, even if it ultimately is good and fine, it's still a principal purpose transaction. This leads us to a serious problem given the IRS's aggressive stance on family-limited partnerships. While we don't have anything that tells us this for sure, it seems highly likely to me that the IRS would take the position that a family limited partnership is a principal purpose transaction. That is, the entity was formed for the principal purpose of reducing federal transfer taxes. As such, the IRS would take the position any a document that addresses a significant federal tax issue related to the family limited partnership transaction is a covered opinion as such. Remember a federal tax issue included a valuation. Remember it's significant if the IRS has a reasonable basis for challenge. Now, we're all pretty much aware and those in business valuation area are aware that a business valuation is almost always not a single point exact item. We know it's a range. We know there can be reasonable disagreements on the amount that gets picked and put in. We have to pick an amount to report on a gift tax return. We have to pick an amount to put on the estate tax return. However, That means the IRS would always have at least a 20% chance, most likely, of changing that number significantly. Even if they wouldn't prevail, they still probably have a significant chance of getting a change. As such, we may have real problems here in the valuation arena, because we just seem to have completed the, the list we needed to get this thing in. It appears we have written advice by a CPA Involving a, a principal purpose transaction that we're all blocked from the opt-out rules on. So we're down to basically having to do a covered opinion in addition to all the verbiage that's going to be needed for a valuation report. And that includes the new valuation proposed standards that we have that may become final. So we may have standards to comply with in the valuation arena, as well as you may need to discuss the federal tax issues and all relevant federal tax issues. We'll get to that. But a covered opinion is a big document. Uh, this may present all kinds of neat problems that we're going to have to deal with in the area of business valuations done by certified public accountants. Now, as we said, basically no opt out. So please keep that in mind. We can't opt out for that. The next category is the largest category. Now we got the two main, the two big nasties, which are listed and principal purpose. After that, we get to what you might call the less nasties, the four less nasty group. Uh, and the first one there is the reliance opinion. Now, reliance opinion is really the catch-all category. If it didn't get caught by any one of the other five categories, it's probably going to fall into this one. This is going to be the one that catches the everything else that didn't fall into one of those. What is a reliance opinion? Reliance opinion is advice that concludes one or more significant federal tax issues will be resolved in the client's favor at a confidence level of at least more likely than not. More likely than not clearly means a greater than 50% chance the client will succeed. The actual words more likely than not or greater than 50% chance do not have to appear in the written advice. So you can't get around this with semantic games of just avoid using those words and you're fined. It doesn't work. There are two significant tests in a reliance opinion. First, are there significant federal tax issues? That is, any of the tax issues we take, is there a reasonable chance the IRS could successfully challenge the position? If there is, do we resolve any of these items in the taxpayer's favor? And remember, it's any. If we resolve any of them in the taxpayer's favor, then we appear to have a reliance opinion. In evaluating the position, you cannot consider the chance or the, of examination, the chance of the item will not be raised on an examination, or the chance of resolution through settlement prior to trial. Basically, you've got to determine greater than 50% chance of success, presuming essentially we go to trial. Now, there's a big exception to a reliance opinion. Something that would generally be a reliance opinion can be taken out of that category and out of the category of covered opinions if you make use of the opt-out rules. Now the opt-out rules have gotten a lot of coverage. And in fact, if you've gotten an email recently from a CPA or another, or another CPA or an attorney or some EAs, you may have noticed a whole set of verbiage stuck on whatever you were written that explained to you you could not rely on this statement, which might have been, let's do lunch next week, uh, for purposes of getting out of any penalties under the internal revenue code, which I think is interesting because I never knew setting up a lunchtime for next week would ever have gotten me out of any penalties with the internal revenue code. Nevertheless. Why are all these why all these verbiage being stuck on all these emails, and why are so many firms putting this into a standard template that goes on every email? Well, the opt-out rules are the reason. You can remove a reliance opinion from the covered opinion rules if you meet the disclaimer disclosure rules found at 10.35b-4ii. Remember, you cannot involve a listed transaction or a principal purpose transaction. If your advice involves either one of those, the opt-out is ineffective. It's still a covered opinion. You cannot opt out of it. If you do a reliance opinion, if you're going to opt out of what would be a reliance opinion, you must prominently disclose the opt-out. What's prominent? Well, The original proposed regulation said you had to put it at the top of the document and in a larger typeface than any other text in the document. Well, as more than a few people pointed out, that might be difficult to do in email, especially since some email clients don't support HTML mail. If you have a text-only email client, there's no way to control the font or the size of the text. It's going to be whatever size it is on the other end. Uh, Even if it does support HTML mail when you send it, I can, in my mail client, choose not to display HTML and to rather to display plain text. Well, this was unworkable, and we got instant messaging. It may be incredibly unworkable. Where's the top of the message? Where's the top of the document? Uh, You know, you got a half-hour instant messaging discussion and you raise the tax issue towards the somewhere in it. Well. You know, I can't go back to restart the hour. Do I kick the client off and then we'll come back in an hour and we'll start this conversation officially so I could put a disclaimer at the top of it? So the IRS did agree and remove those requirements. What they did say, though, was it still needs to be prominent. The term prominent was left. You cannot put it in smaller type than anything else, so you can't bury it that way, and it cannot be in a footnote. That is also deemed not prominent under the regulation. What is in an opt-out disclaimer? Well, the opt-out disclaimer, certain rules, must be in the written advice. Okay, it's got to be part of that. You can't just kind of tag it on separately. It has to indicate the advice was not intended or written by the practitioner to be used for the purpose of avoiding penalties that may be imposed on the taxpayer, and the advice cannot be used to avoid penalties that may be imposed. Let's think about what the purpose of this was. The purpose of this provision is to remove from the client the defense of reliance on a professional. Traditionally, taxpayers can quite often have been able to escape penalties by claiming they reasonably relied on a tax professional to advise them on the issues of what their responsibilities were under taxes, and they had given the professional all of the relevant information, the professional then gave them an opinion and they relied on that opinion and that was deemed a reasonable cause. What the IRS is saying is an opinion is going to have to meet the covered opinion requirements or it will not be deemed to be reasonable cause. So they're going to take it out of there. In the Circular 230 regs they published, the IRS indicated they are planning to revise the penalty regulations for individual taxpayers, to comply with this rule as well. Note that means one thing at the moment. Right now, the actual regs for penalties don't say this. Only the Circular 230 regulations say this. So for the taxpayer, they still can rely without this. But once you put this language in, now there's a question they've been told they can't rely on it. And will the courts now deem it that you should not have reasonably relied on something that told you you couldn't reasonably rely on it? may set up some problems, and there are a number of problems we've got going in that area. Key question this comes up, and this is really the issue that many, many, maybe many of you are here to hear about or want to try to figure out. Should I put opt-out language on everything I do? A number of firms have decided yes, we'll start from there. They put opt-out language attached to the most mundane correspondence. You know, I'll see you at the kid's softball game tonight. Uh, You can't rely on that to escape penalties. Uh, You know, you find that attached to everything. They plastered it everywhere. I'm sure in some firms it's sitting in the manuals for the copy machine. There is a, you cannot rely on this manual for the copy machine to escape penalties. Uh, Just put it on everything and figure you're safe. Now, There is, though, some real concern among many of us that a CPA who does this may open themselves up to a malpractice claim if a client gets one of the penalties that didn't require more likely than not opinion, but the CPA had issued this document, this blanket statement saying he couldn't rely on it for penalty protection, and we had a reasonable basis but not more likely than not opinion. Uh, we might have a problem now that the taxpayer cannot claim to have reasonably relied on the professional because the taxpayer was informed by the professional that they couldn't rely on the advice. We have a conflict here. As I noted, the regulations for client penalties have not for taxpayer penalties have not yet caught up with this. Note, the disclaimer did not limit the penalties for which you couldn't rely it just said you can't rely on penalties imposed on the federal income tax federal tax laws that includes the penalties that are reasonable basis position penalty waivers they can't rely on it for reasonable basis therefore what exactly did you do to the client by including the opt-out language on that document The penalty shouldn't apply to section 6662db, the substantial understatement penalty. It only requires substantial authority, not a more likely than not position. We have some real problems here. The overuse of this provision may be hazardous to the client's financial health, and, as you might suspect, the client who is damaged may look for somebody else to blame, and a malpractice claim may try to make it your responsibility for having subjected the client to this, even though the client had paid you to basically solve this problem. Now, if you use opt-out language, what have people been using? Well, an example is in the materials that I offer up. The actual things being used have varied widely. Uh, BNA on their website, uh, in their, in their tax service for the portfolios had a link to circular 230 coverage, maybe in their other tax practice matters as well. But they had a link to a number of example 230 disclosures, which went all the way from single, short, single sentences to paragraph long discourses on the matter. Uh, I've got an example in the book that I think gives what has to be given. You may want to say more or less. It depends on how you feel. But it says something like IRS rules require that I disclose to you that any advice contained in this letter, email, fax, whatever it may be, is not intended to be and cannot be used for the purpose of avoiding penalties imposed on you. If you want to use it, and there are going to be cases where you will use it, I don't care what your position is. If you believe you never have to disclaim, you don't understand the rules. You need to go back to square one and work some more on this concept. So there will be a case you're going to need the language. You need to work on it. You need something of this sort. You've got to tell them they cannot, is not intended to be relied upon and you have to tell them they cannot rely upon it for a purpose of avoiding penalties. now, Opt-out is limited. Not all covered opinions can be opted out of. Remember, you can't opt out of listed transactions. That doesn't work. And you cannot opt out of principal purpose transactions. If you opt out and either one of those issues are in there and you should have known that and presumably you should know that one of those two was there, I can argue that having the opt-out language in there proves you don't know the standards and you don't know what you're... Basically, it makes it look as if the CPA is unprofessional. could be very useful, again, in a malpractice case. You're seeing a recurring theme here. These standards may be much more dangerous to you, not from the Office of Professional Responsibility and actions against you that would go for IRS discipline, but in fact, use the standards against you for purposes of malpractice claims and client claims, which I think most commentators feel is clearly the far more dangerous area coming off of these standards. Given the IRS's view of family-limited partnerships as well, I suspect the IRS position may very well be it's not possible to opt out on a family-limited partnership matter. If you give written tax advice regarding a family-limited partnership, you probably are in the covered opinion realm, or at least have to certainly deal with these rules. You know, especially when you tell the client that you believe it is sustainable. If you tell them that, you tell them the position you believe is sustainable, and it seems kind of difficult to tell the client, no, I don't think the position we're taking is at all sustainable. That's not normally the way clients like to hear you phrase it. And secondly, if they go, then why in the world did you ever suggest this to me if you don't think it's going to work? Uh, basically we have to go back to square one and work from there. So you may have a covered opinion problem. And when we get to what a covered opinion consists of, you're going to find having a covered opinion problem is not a minor detail. It's a pretty big problem. Let's go on to the next class of the subset four, shall we call them? A marketed opinion. What is a marketed opinion? This is advice a taxpayer knows, or more importantly, has reason to know, and that's the dangerous phrase, will be used by or referred to a person other than a member of the practitioner's firm to promote, market, or recommend a partnership or other entity, investment plan, or arrangement to one or more taxpayers. So we have a opinion that we expect will go out to someone else. Now, I want to pause on kind of a side issue here right away to get back to this thing we discussed earlier. We talked about partnership or other entity investment plan or arrangement. Uh, basically, remember we had discussed earlier about the fact that maybe that's been interpreted too broadly by many commentators. I will note to you that when you get to the co- the other written advice column of this area, and we talk about what you have to do for other written advice. The IRS goes on to state that if you know it might be used, you have reason to believe it might be used by someone other than your client for a tra- for a for a tax return position. Then we're going to interpret the standard more strictly for the other written advice. I would argue that if, in fact, transaction basically partial or entity investment planner arrangement. Was incredibly broad and covered virtually everything. I would argue at this point that therefore if that were the case, then that's a useless sentence in the other written advice because you never could have other written advice that would involve something that would be used by somebody, something other than your client. Because if you had other written advice that would be used by somebody other than your client, it would automatically become a covered opinion problem. And that would put you under these rules and not the other written advice rule. So that's just a little aside for internal consistency point. But again, other people will disagree with the way you'd read that or disagree. There's a significance there. Just fair warning. We have a position. Now, if your written advice is used in the fashion described just before this, where we talked about you knew it was going to be used by an outsider for this transaction or plan, you may have a problem. Let's consider some examples that are in the material. You have a real estate agent as a client. The real estate agent also owns a number of rental properties. The real estate agent comes to you and says, I'm thinking about doing a 1031 exchange on this property I've held for years and I want to take this commercial office building and I want to exchange it for another one. And you say, okay, fine, here's what we need to do and here's how, you know, how does that work? And so you describe the basics of a 1031 exchange, whatever details would be for this particular transaction. Now, your real estate client is impressed by that document. In fact, so impressed that they take it, make a copy of it, and start handing it out to their clients who are considering doing or selling at a big gain and saying, oh, well, you can saw that there's this 1031 exchange thing my accountant told me about here. Here's a copy of what he gave me. Do you have a marketed opinion? Was it reasonable to have assumed that that might be used for that purpose? Should you, should you have known it would be used in that manner? Another example, online message boards as you're aware here in the Arizona Society, most likely you should be aware, as a listserv where we discuss tax matters among CPAs. A question was brought up a few months ago. If someone answers a question on that board and another participant takes that written document, again, that's written advice under these rules, and then goes out and hands that to his client, and by the way, that's not a far-fetched example. Unfortunately, we do know of cases of things like that happening on online boards. I don't know of it happening on the Arizona board. I do know of it happening on the California Society board. Uh, basically, as an aside, that's not a good thing to do if you're a reader of the board, is to hand out somebody else's advice to your client. First thing is, it's kind of dumb from a marketing standpoint because it's clear you know, why should I be paying you when this guy clearly knows what he's doing and you don't? But number two, it's just not good from a professional responsibility and a professional courtesy standpoint to be giving out that advice to somebody who the CPA was never aware was going to be seeing it. But that is an aside. If that happens, did we have a marketed opinion? Now, I would take the position no, and I've, argued that position, but there are those take position yes. My concern though to those take position yes, then let's go on to the next thing. What if you wrote a magazine article for the tax advisor, the Journal of Accountancy or AZCPA, and that tax article discussed a transaction and another person now CPA goes, copies that and hands that to a client, which is probably more likely and happens more often than we might than we might think where somebody just goes and says, yeah, this is great. Yeah, not only that, here it was. The Arizona Society of CPAs or the AICPA or Thompson Publishing and Practical Tax Strategies publish this article and tells you all about it. Is that article now marketed tax advice? You write a column for the local paper. You put that column describes a transaction that become marketed tax advice. Is that one going to be used by any of your clients? And you certainly didn't have any reason to think it was going to be used by other professionals for the most part. You know, it was going out in the general public. Is that a marketed tax? Is that now a marketed opinion? By the way, I don't believe those are, but we still have the issue. It's written advice. What about the example where a client purchases a building? And brings in a partner who is not a client after receiving the advice. You know, the client's going to buy a building. He asks you about all the tax benefits and the rules involved with the building and renting a building to his controlled corporation. And you give him this document. And then he decides to let his friend Joe buy into it with him. So Joe's going to come in or his employee Joe is going to come in with him to buy this because you didn't know this, but he's now thinking he wants to take Joe on as a partner. So he's telling Joe, why don't you come in there with a building with me then too, and we'll rent the building to the corporation and you know you and i will both own the building. Was that a marketed opinion? Would your answer change if when you did this you had you looked at the client's finances and thought, well, I know he's never going to get the financing for this. Should you have reasonably expected he might have brought in somebody with money to help finance the transaction? And if you had and if that was foreseeable, even if you weren't didn't know about it, should you have been able to reasonably foresee that? And as such, should you have known that would be a marketed transaction? Now, for a marketed opinion, there is a modified opt out. You can't use just the standard opt out. You have to go a little bit farther. The modified opt-out is found at 10.35B52I. What you have is essentially the standard Reliance Opinion opt-out language, plus a disclosure the advice was written to support the promotion or marketing of a transaction or matter, and the taxpayer should seek independent advice based on the taxpayer's particular situation from an independent tax advisor. If that is in the document, it's not a marketed opinion, and it does not have to meet the covered opinion standards. The real problem is the second issue. In many of the cases I described, the problem was the CPA, the question is going to come down, did the CPA foresee it, or was it should he have known? Remember, it's not did you know, it's whether you should have known. Well, if you should have known, but you, but you just didn't get it, or at least in the view of the IRS or the view of the plaintiff's attorney, you should have known. Uh, you know, you probably aren't going to have even thought of throwing this particular language saying it was intended to be marketed. In fact, had you even had a clue the client was intending to use this to entice somebody else into a transaction, you never would have given the opinion. So that second issue is probably going to be the problem, but the plain opt out won't work. So we can't end up with this. That presents a real problem. If you have the standard opt-out language on your document and another person ends up with that document, uh, you could have a problem because your standard disclaimer clearly is not adequate under the Circular 230 rules. That person argues you should have known it was a marketed opinion. As such, you should have told them to get independent advice. You didn't. Therefore, and since the, and not only an independent advice would have convinced me not to do this, uh, cause we're going to presume it went bad. And an independent advice would have convinced me not to go in with my friend over here and buy this building cause it turns out to be on the new love canal. Had we just done that, I wouldn't have lost all this money. And since you should have told me to do that and you didn't, and you were required by law to tell me to do that and you didn't, you need to pay me for what I lost. I think what you're going to have to consider, and this may be important no matter whether you put opt-out language in or not, you may need to at least consider adding restriction on any advice you give that it is not to be used for the marketing of any transaction. Now, while that doesn't literally fall under the rule and not to be shared with a third party as well, uh, it doesn't literally fall under the rule, I think the IRS and the courts would have a difficult time. making somebody believe that it was okay to impose liability on the CPA for this advice when the advice says in its text clearly that it wasn't to be relied upon by anybody but Joe you know Joe Smith for purposes of the transaction. You worked during anybody else's situation and it was not to be used in that fashion. A number of firms have added such do not use this for marketing language to their document. third option that forces us into covered opinions, an opinion that is subject to conditions of confidentiality. This is defined in 10.35b6, and this is related to the reportable transaction rules, is where we're going to find this is very similar. It imposes a condition of confidentiality, imposes a limitation on disclosure of the tax treatment or tax structure of a transaction. The limitation protects the confidentiality of the practitioner's strategies. It does not matter if, in fact, that restriction would not be deemed to be legally binding. If you said and told the person, they cannot disclose it. They are put on a condition of that. Even if that condition is invalid under the law, it doesn't matter. They still now have a condition of confidentiality, and you have to issue the covered opinion. A claim that a transaction is proprietary exclusive, though, is not by itself a condition of confidentiality. I can say I'm the only person doing this transaction. I can say we're the only place that you're going to find out you're going to be able to do this or the structures these for you. I can make that claim as long as I don't prohibit the client from informing the rest of the world about what I'm doing or you know in, in disclosing the nature of the tax transaction uh Basically, I don't have a problem. I don't have a listed a confidential confidentiality transaction. It might be there under some other rule, but not under that one. So that's a case where we see the condition of confidentiality. It is very similar but not identical to the definition found in regulation one6011 4 for the reportable transaction condition of confidentiality. There are some minor differences in what each of them says. But it's very, very similar, so we're looking at very similar rules. Uh, the reportable transactions discourage this type of transaction already. This is another discouragement. My own gut reaction is we're going to see a lot fewer of these now, except among people that just haven't got on yet or had, don't know what they're doing. So probably if you see one of these anymore, it's an immediate flag that you really have somebody who's not keeping up. And that may be extraordinarily dangerous in a very aggressive tax position. Let's see, not keeping up with the law and doing aggressive tax work. That's, uh, that That's a recipe for disaster for a client. Contractual protection. That's the next category where we come into a covered, where we come into covered opinions. That's defined at 10.35B7. If you provide contractual protection, you have a covered opinion. Contractual protection is a right to full or partial refund of fees paid if the tax consequences are not sustained. Or the fees are contingent upon realization of tax benefits from the transaction. You need to be careful. You can trigger this one by accident if you're not aware it's there. If you, the way it reads, if you offer the client any sort of refund or reduction, if this transaction is not sustained, If this transaction does not take place, you know, if this is not sustained, then I'll go ahead and I'll back off that because I am so sure it's correct. You know, I'm sure it's correct. And if it's not sustained, we'll come off of it. If that condition is out there, then any written advice must be a covered opinion and meet the covered opinion standards. The IRS concern was that many of these marketed tax shelters were being pushed as no-risk provisions because, you know, we'll do this and you have no real risk because if anything goes wrong, we'll basically, you know, make you whole again. We'll protect you. So you have contractual protection on the transaction. And the IRS was concerned that that basically encouraged taxpayers to take extraordinarily aggressive positions because as far as they were concerned, there was no risk to the position. Because even if it didn't work, that didn't matter because they were going to be made whole by the promoter, uh, made whole under this opinion. Uh, if there's a made whole provision, then you have a covered opinion and you must give the covered opinion. Now, the next thing is a set of advice that was excluded. There is excluded advice, uh, excluded communications, that is, that are not going to be considered Covered opinions under these rules, uh, these were issued primarily in response to comments on the original draft of these changes to circular two thirty and a number of commentators were concerned about some very specific issues that uh, they they felt would fall under these rules that clearly were not meant to be covered or shouldn't be covered under these rules that would be kind of absurd to put under the rules uh, basically they fall into one of these categories the first one is preliminary advice and that one is just you know it's a little ridiculous if every time i wrote the client a letter in the back and forth on this when we were trying to straighten out what was going to go on with this transaction i was just trying to get information anytime i gave any commentary of any sort about where we stood i'd have to do a you know covered opinion so the IRS agreed that preliminary advice where you're going back and forth with the client saying, we need to know this because this has an impact. If this happens, then it would change it and the following things would happen. And it's not going to work if this, you know, if this isn't, if this is the case or if that's the case. So, you know, give me a, something in line. Give me some of the facts so I know what's happening. Um, you know, the, this is why I need to know this because this is very important to resolve this matter. If you have preliminary advice, which is being given, in contemplation of giving the full-blown covered opinion at a later date, then it's not a covered opinion, and you can exclude that communication from the covered opinion rules. That helps some, but again, it's just more of a case of we don't have to keep issuing, we we can issue one covered opinion, not 12 on this transaction. There are specific items of advice that were excluded. Qualifications of a plan, a state or local bond opinion, or a document included in an SEC document filing. These are all excluded from the definition of a covered comp- or of covered opinion. Now, note, there are a couple of issues here to watch. Qualifications of a Qualified Plan. Note, it is limited to qualification matters. If you give advice any other way regarding the plan, that does not necessarily impact qualification, but maybe impacts funding, amount of funding, uh, those are still going to be covered opinions, potentially. They're not excluded. This is merely the issue as to whether the plan itself is qualified, because that's a rather normal transaction. And obviously, generally, we're going to go for a determination letter from the IRS so the IRS is not terribly concerned if you tell somebody this plan is qualified when you know we're going for a determination letter that will tell us the plan is qualified or not. At least the IRS will rule on the basic qualification. State or local bond opinions are covered by other rules that are currently being finalized, but that's going to be just a whole other set. That's why they were excluded from these rules. Or if it's a document including an SEC document filing, then it's excluded from the covered opinion rules. Also excluded, post-transaction advice. Now, that has to meet certain criteria to be excluded. It has to be solely for the use of a particular taxpayer. You're not going to get this if it could be used by other taxpayers. It's got to be limited to that taxpayer. It's provided after that taxpayer has filed a return that reflected the tax benefits of the transaction. So you provide this advice after the transaction has taken place and after the return has been filed. So it doesn't matter if the client did this transaction in January of 2005 and you weren't involved with that, but you come in today and you give advice about whether the client, what the client's position might be on the return. You have a covered opinion, even though the deal is already a done deal. Your opinion today will have to come under the covered opinion rules. And the exclusion does not apply if the tax practitioner knows or should know. The advice will be used by the taxpayer to take a position on a tax return, including an amended return, filed after the date on which the advice is provided. So the transaction is done, the taxpayer is filed, but you advise the taxpayer uh, on the issue, knowing that the taxpayer is going to use that advice as a basis for an amended tax return or claim for refund. It's still a covered opinion because it affects a future tax return. What they're looking at there really primarily are post-transaction advice, which probably is going to come in the examination phase, where you're given advice, you're brought in to take a look at something after the fact, and the client's in the examination phase, and you're developing your advice or your information at that point. Also, advice to a practitioner's employee solely for determining the tax liability of the employer. Note, that is limited. As a controller, you can still get in trouble here. Remember, it's limited to your employer. If, oh, by the way, in addition to your employer, you do tax work for a couple of other companies your employer controls, or you do some tax work for the employer himself. He asks you, you know, deals with his personal tax problems, and you give him advice on that. Not excluded. You're in. You're still in the covered opinion rules. You know, it's not clear how strictly we determine employer there, but it may arguably be that if your employer owns subsidiaries, and you come up in the tax position involves subsidiaries taxes or let's say a non-Casalde subsidiary especially, that now clearly it's their taxes separately, uh, you may have a covered opinion problem when you give that advice, even if you're giving it to yourself effectively, because you're the person who's going to handle the return. Uh, nevertheless, it's still a covered, it's no longer a covered, it's a covered opinion, and you may have to deal with it. Finally, excluded is negative advice. This is the just-say-no standard. Advice that does not resolve any federal tax issue in favor of the taxpayer and does not provide a conclusion favorable to the taxpayer at any confident level, including that the proposition is just simply not frivolous on any federal tax issue. Just-say-no was put in because commentators had said, look, it's crazy to say that if a client walks in the door with this off-the-wall, listed transaction tax shelter, and I tell him it's garbage, and I just write him a letter saying this is garbage and you shouldn't do it, that I have to provide a covered opinion at that point to say this is garbage and you shouldn't do it. And the IRS agreed. If you tell him this is garbage and you shouldn't do it, it's not going to work, uh, don't touch it, then you're not covered opinion. But note, if you give any other level of assurance or you give any other commentary, anything that may suggest a confidence level of other than this will not work at all, you're not under the just say no standard. So the just say no standard is very nice, but realize you can drift off it very quickly if you make any suggestion that that there may be some support for a reasonable basis position. That loses the just say no standard. Now, in the appendix to the materials beginning at page 32, there is a flow chart, very useful one, prepared by Kip Dellinger of the California used by used by permission from him uh, for today's materials. That flow chart will walk you through whether or not you have a covered opinion. Now, we've gone through the rules so far of whether or not you have a covered opinion. We am not gone through yet what you do for a covered opinion, but at least you know whether or not you have one. He's an author for CCH on practice before the IRS. And he's authored a number of commentaries on the revisions to Circular 230. You can walk through this flowchart if you have an issue about what is or what is not a covered opinion. Walk through it. You'll come down to either... You have to follow the cover, you have to do the covered opinion. You don't. But it takes you through all the criteria we've discussed here and bounces you down to hopefully sort out to the bottom line. Do I have to worry about a covered opinion rule? If you kick out and say you don't have to worry about it, you can stop. You don't have to go on to the next section of this particular course for this one. If you don't drop through and you have to go covered opinion, then we go on to the next section. Okay, what is a covered opinion? You know, we've been talking about having to do one. Well, what do you have to do if you have to do one? Well, you must use your covered opinion, or you decide not to opt out. You must perform the required procedures in accordance to circuit 230 standards, comply with the standards related to the reliance on work of others, and make certain required disclosures. Let's start at the beginning of that list. Required procedures. You have required procedures regarding factual matters that are found at 10.35C1. You must identify and ascertain the relevant facts applicable to the issues at hand. The opinion must consider all facts determined to be relevant. So reverse that. Any fact you don't talk about in the opinion is deemed not relevant and a plaintiff's attorney will tend to use that logic if there is a assessment against the taxpayer by the IRS that makes reference to a fact that you had not talked about, the plaintiff's attorney may very well claim that you were negligent in advising the client because, see, you missed it. Your thing was silent about this fact. So you have to discuss all relevant facts. If you don't have a fact in there, you're saying it's not relevant. This is a theory that's very close to what if you've ever taken a compilation review course from Walter Haig or a disclosure course where he talks about the fact that there's this presumption that if it's not in there, there is no disclosure required under GAAP. Same theory here. If you don't talk about it, there's not a relevant fact. We can presume the fact is not relevant. That presumption is going to be just as if you said this fact is utterly irrelevant to whatever tax you'd owe. So, you are saying that about everything you don't comment on. Be careful in, the cover, in these standards. You may not base the opinion on any reasonable factual assumptions, including those related to future events. It's a no or should have known standard. So, again, it's not just whether you knew this was bad, it's whether you reasonably should have known. That this was not, you know, in essence, you can't play ostrich here. You have to pay attention and you always have some risk under should have known that uh, the IRS may see that broader than you did. This includes reliance on a projection, forecast or an appraisal. Any of those items are subject to your unreasonable test. The IRS was very concerned about business purpose, and so they made the rule saying an assumption that a transaction has a business purpose or is profitable aside from tax benefits is by its definition unreasonable. You cannot take a bare assertion from the client or anyone else that a transaction has a business purpose or that a transaction is profitable aside from tax benefits you must find more support than that or you're relying on an unreasonable assumption and you're not allowed to do that. Remember, unreasonable assumption does not just impact, as we'll discover, the covered opinions. It impacts everything. So you may very well find that what the IRS is telling you is you can never presume that in any of your advice. If you presume those issues, it was unreasonable. You must conclude the case is involved that the condition exists or will exist. And you can't just assume it away. Again, the IRS felt, and correctly so, because some of these opinions I've talked with a number of people, and one thing we tend to talk about is in many cases they have assumed away or clearly disclaimed out of the theory about, well, you know, they're not going to talk about whether this has a profit motive, whether there's a business purpose. It's like, well, that's the whole key in most of these cases. Did it have that? Because that's going to be the attack. The IRS was very upset with the fact that they would get around or assume that or ignore it. And they're saying now you cannot assume that. Your opinion cannot assume a business purpose. It cannot assume that a transaction will be profitable aside from tax benefits. Okay. Now, you have required procedures concerning factual matters. You cannot rely on a projection, financial forecast, or appraisal. Any of those. If the practitioner knows or should know, the person performing that projection, forecast, or appraisal lacks the skill to prepare the item in question. If the client has no expertise whatsoever in real estate or business valu- valuations, let's say, of whatever the asset is, it is not reasonable to rely on the client to provide you with that value. This is going to be very similar to the standard we have about stated account, stated qualifications, of the client's accounting personnel in the compilation arena where we have to keep our eyes open and reasonably ask the question of, is the person who's telling me this competent to tell me this? Or, in fact, the, is this something I can't rely on from them? We're going to have to do something more or look for some other source for this information. You also cannot rely on a forecast projection or appraisal if you know it is incorrect or incomplete. Know or should know that it's one of those problems. You can't ignore the warts when you look down there and you see a cap rate that makes no sense whatsoever. Uh, you cannot sit back and say, well, I accept that. I'm just going to, that, that's the assumption. The appraiser gave it. I'm going to take it. You, you can't do that. If in fact it is an unreasonable assumption and you know it's unreasonable, or it's an unreasonable uh, appraisal, and you know it's unreasonable, then you're not allowed to accept it, regardless of the fact that you had somebody else tell you that. You must disclose all factual assumptions now in a separate section. There are required procedures for reliance on a third party. This is going to sound familiar and somewhat repetitive. You cannot base the opinion on a reasonable factual representation, statement, or finding of the client or any other person. It is unreasonable if the taxpayer knows or should know there is a problem with representation. The IRS specifically in their example states a naked representation of a business purpose is unreasonable. If the client simply tells you I have a business purpose but doesn't describe it, Somebody else tells you, oh yeah, there's business purpose, but doesn't describe it. You must have a rep- specific description of what the business purpose is, which means you're going to have to make a decision as to whether that is reasonable, given the fact you know that that particular purpose would become a reasonable business purpose. You must also perform a smell test on the business purpose representation. The IRS is making a special emphasis here due to the market opinion problems they felt they had. So you again, you have to do the smell test. Check and see if it makes sense. The opinion must identify in a separate section all factual representations, statements, or findings of the taxpayer that were relied upon by the practitioner. You have to make clear in a separate section what things the taxpayer was responsible for. The IRS concern and a concern that I have because I've seen an opinion that had this is when it comes down to the bottom line to it discovers that the taxpayer believed he had an opinion here saying everything was fine. When in reality, the only way it was fine is because in there they said, we presume all of these facts. So the taxpayer was really responsible for the opinion. Well, taxpayer thought the attorney or the accountant or whoever provided it was responsible for the opinion. So basically there wasn't an opinion because nobody really was taking responsibility for the key issue. Uh, you have to identify that so the client can't claim they didn't know they were the one that they thought somebody else had took care of that. Next uh, procedural requirement. You must relate the law to the facts found at the previous step. You must relate the applicable law, including judicial doctrine, to the relevant facts. You have to do all of them that are relevant. You can't skip troublesome ones or ones that aren't quite going to work the way you'd like them to work. You're going to have to evaluate them all. So that doesn't mean you can just kind of say, well, you know, it's going to be a problem over here on this, so I'm just going to talk about this. You have to talk about it and come to a conclusion. You cannot assume a favorable resolution of any federal tax issue except... For an item you specifically state you are not covering in a limited scope opinion, presuming you're allowed to make a limited scope opinion, you are in some cases aren't in others, or you comply with the reliance standard for relying on a third party and you basically make use and reference the fact you've made use of that third party in coming at it. For instance, you might rely on an attorney's, uh, comp- an attorney's opinion Regarding an issue of property ownership, let's say a property law in Arizona, you might rely on that. If you've relied on that in relating the law to the facts, you relied on on his line, then you can say I reasonably rely on that because I checked out, I did all my due diligence on this attorney, I believe his stuff and I'm relying on his opinion in this regard. Now, you have procedures for relaying the law to the facts. Generally, it's going to prohibit assumptions as to the law. The, taxpayer, the practitioner is presumed to be the person with the expertise that's being relied upon to pull this all together. That's why you're doing an opinion. So you're responsible for the whole thing. You can't just assume away a section and say, I'm not going to deal with that. Again, short of the limited scope opinion. And the opinion cannot be internally inconsistent. What does that mean? Well, you can't assume one resolution to a legal question to get over hump A, and then we got hump B, and you we're going to get over hump B as if that same legal question is resolved 180 degrees differently. Well, you're not allowed to do that. Even though you may be able to argue for each resolution, you may be able to have a reasonable basis for arguing for each, that's not relevant if, in fact... There is no way that both of these conditions can exist at the same time, and in the overall opinion, they would both need to exist. So you have to be careful in that regard, and make sure you watch on that and are not internally inconsistent. You must come to a conclusion as to each significant federal tax issue. You have to conclude whether the taxpayer will prevail on each of the issues. If you're unable to reach a conclusion, the opinion must state you're unable to reach a conclusion to specific issues involved. And you've got to describe the reason for each conclusion, including your reason unable to come to a conclusion. You can't pull the amazing Kreskin routine and suddenly look at the ceiling and say, I've got it. This will work. It's not just the answers. Now, I know clients tend to be ones who say, I don't care about rigmarole, does it work? Give me a yes or no. I just want a yes or no. You can't just give a yes or no. You've got to give the description. It is required in the covered covered opinion. You must describe the rationale and give your opinion, but describe the rationale. It has to be in there. You can't just do a yes or no answer under a covered opinion. You must come to a conclusion, include the facts and analysis, If you fail to reach a more likely than not confidence level one or more issue, you've got to include one or more significant issue. You've got to include specific The opinion cannot be relied upon to avoid penalties and that the the opinion failed to reach a more likely than not conclusion as to one or more of the significant issues. So if you don't come to a more likely than not conclusion across the board and overall then you're going to have to tell the client you cannot rely on this opinion to escape penalties and disclose that you could not come to a more likely than not conclusion. You can't, you can't push your foot around this one. You gotta come in and make it open. Your evaluation must be based solely on the merits of the issue. You cannot consider the possibility the return will not be audited. The issue would not be raised on audit if the return was audited. The issue would be resolved through settlement if it was relays on audit. Basically, you're going to presume we are going to court. We're going in front of the judge. The judge is going to take the facts and the law and is going to issue an opinion. And that opinion will give us the answer. And what are our odds in that scenario? Trial court is the earliest place you're allowed to make the determination of more likely than not. So you basically have to get all the way to trial court at least theoretically in your mind, all the way forward to the trial court to get to the more likely than not prevailing uh on this position. The required provisions are of relaying law are found ten three two and a marketed opinion, very important, must meet, must reach a more likely than not confidence level in each significant federal tax issue or you can't issue it except with the use of the disclaimer. Remember the thing that told you you can't use this for penalties uh, and you need to consult an independent tax advisor? If you don't get to more likely than not across the board, you have to tell them, go talk to somebody else to look at your situation. So that's the marketed opinion. If you think that was meant to go after the confidential stuff, yeah, it was meant to go after that. You're not going to be able to tell somebody or give an opinion that weasels and then say you can't talk to anybody, in essence, you're going to tell them that they've got to go talk to somebody else. Okay, we also are subjected to a competence requirement when doing a covered opinion. We found at 10.35, you're going to need to be competent to provide the opinion. That means being knowledgeable in all aspects of federal tax law relevant to the opinion being rendered. Now, that's not really a big deal because the ICPA Code of Professional Conduct Ethics Interpretation 201-1 essentially required you had to have, possess or be able to possess before the engagement is over the required professional competence to perform the engagement. Uh, if you don't have that competence, you are prohibited under the accountancy rules from accepting the engagement. Well, Circular 230 says again, if you're not you're not competent on the federal tax issues, you're prohibited. Now, you can rely for federal tax purposes enter the S.C.P.A. rules on the opinion of someone else, unless you know or should know the opinion should not be relied upon. However, you've got to you've got to identify that other opinion and set forth the conclusions reached in the other opinion. As well, you've got to be satisfied the analysis taken as a whole. Will satisfy the requirements of Circular 230. This is similar to the standards for tax return positions found on SSTS Number One, Paragraph Seven. That's tax return positions, Paragraph Eight. Then basically pulls it to written advice as well. So basically, you've got to presume that your advice stands on its own as a whole. It's not unreasonable as a whole. Let's talk about limited scope opinions. Okay. We talked about this is one more out now, okay? We finally got covered. We've gone through everything else. Now we're going to say, well, but I don't want to cover every single significant federal tax issue. I want to cover just these areas. The client agrees these other areas are going to be their responsibility. Well, the IRS will, in some cases, let you do that, where you're going to rule on the specific issue, knowing that there are other issues that are important in which the client says, okay, I don't care, you know, yeah. Let, let me go on those, you know, they, you know, I don't want you to spend lots of time confirming this stuff on these. I know they're right, I'm comfortable, and you have no reason to believe they aren't. Uh, can, can we go forward and just give me the ruling on the one area that really is a problem? And there is a way to do that. Note, though, significant rules must be followed to make use of limited scope of opinion, and again, it's not available for certain types of transactions. Now, to do this, the taxpayer and the practitioner must agree the scope of the opinion and the taxpayer's ability to rely on the opinion is limited. We're back to we better have an engagement letter here to document this fact because we've got to show we agreed. I, The taxpayer and I agreed on this limitation, so it was clear going in, the taxpayer knew he was not getting a general purpose opinion. The opinion does not address a listed transaction or a principal purpose transaction. Sounds familiar. Those two always get special treatment. It's not a marketed opinion. You can't do limited scope on a marketed opinion. An appropriate disclosure must be made under the limited purpose rules. You can make, or limited scope rules, you can't make a reasonable assumption of a favorable resolution of a significant federal tax issue. Now, remember, it still must be reasonable, so you can't make a blatantly unreasonable, uh, assumption on resolution. So you're still going to have to test out any assumptions you make. They better be reasonably possible, you know, in the reasonable realm, not something way out in left field. Must specifically identify assumed favorable resolutions in the second separate section of your opinion. You've got to tell everybody I presumed all these things. You still have to identify all issues and alert the client to the issue. It doesn't get you out of that work. I've got to tell the client about all the issues that are there, but you're, but I'm assuming these away and I'm doing these. Again, if not mentioned, it's not relevant. You're still making that assertion when you do this statement, when you do this opinion. So if you didn't mention it, you didn't tell the client, I'm assuming you on this or you agree we're assuming you on this. If we just didn't mention this at all, then the presumption is it's not relevant, meaning you could be in trouble if the IRS comes back and actually makes an assessment based on this other area. In trouble, maybe circular 230, possibly civil court, very possibly, because the claim will be that, you know, so limited scope opinion, you should have told me this other issue was relevant because I only agreed to take X, Y, and Z, And you agreed to take A and B, but C was what the problem was, and nobody addressed C, and you should have told me C was a problem, even if you weren't going to cover it. Okay, that is the covered opinion section. Gave a lot of heat, a lot of problems. Where do we stand on that? Well, every firm has to look. Developments are occurring daily, pretty much, on this. You need to take a look, see where your firm will be on this. You need to make some decisions. Study this and go over it yourself. Section 10.36, Procedures to Ensure Compliance. We're back to that person with overall responsibility for tax practice, but now we have teeth. This one's enforceable. That person is personally liable for the violation of Circular 230 through willfulness, recklessness, gross incompetence, failed to take steps to ensure compliance with Circular 230, so you didn't take the steps you should have, and A member of the firm violates 10.35 or 10.39. The firm is engaged in a pattern of violation and you do not take any action to correct the situation. So you're aware of those things and you don't take action to correct. You're now in trouble. You didn't set up anything, stop it ahead of time. You didn't take action to correct. You're now in trouble. Written advice is not a covered opinion falls under the 10.37 other written advice rules. Now, so this is, we skipped covered opinion. We still got to meet this one. Written advice cannot be issued if it's based on unreasonable factual or legal assumptions, including assumptions about future events. So you can't, you still can't take the client's assumptions at face value if you have reason to believe they're not, they're not correct or they're unreasonable. Unreasonably relies on representation statements or findings of a client or a third party. Does not consider the facts practitioner knows or should know about. All of these things must be considered. And you cannot consider audit lottery issues. That whole issue about being raised on audit, the issue being, the return being audited, the issue being raised on audit, or being compromised before we get to trial. You cannot assume any of those in your written advice where you tell the client there's a, you know, he's got an excellent chance prevailing on this. Can't say that. You can't say any of those things. If if you're doing so, you'd come to a conclusion based upon the fact the return would never be examined. Facts and circumstances are going to be used to determine if the client com- provide, complied with this provision or the taxpayer, the practitioner did. A quick phone call in a simple matter requires a less thorough discussion if you send off a note to the client, you know, a blurb, one-line email of, you know, what's the charitable mileage rate? You send that back, that's not going to require as much uh concern or worry or documentation or written advice as if the client says, Well, I'm thinking of buying an office building and I want to do a cost segregate there's this cost segregation study thing that somebody's talking to me about, and you know, what what all how does all that work and what's going to happen and what do I get from it? Uh that requires a little more writing. Be- interesting question if you put opt-out language on something, didn't you indicate that it may very well be a reliance opinion if you hadn't? And if it would have been a reliance opinion if you hadn't done that, do you think the IRS might reasonably conclude this is a type of written advice that should be more concerned about rather than one they should be less concerned about? It should come to a higher standard. So even though it's written advice, it should be closer to the covered opinion. Than should something that would not have been a covered opinion if it hadn't been for the opt out again opt out is nice, opt out's useful. I understand why people are using it, but realize it's not a panacea, it doesn't solve all of our problems, and this is another one that it could create. The IRS has indicated that a higher standard care will be applied if you know or should know the advice will be used by somebody other than the person the taxpayer is the practitioner is working with. So if you know or should know that somebody else is going to get this and use it, then you need to come up to a higher level of care than you do generally. Now, an area that was quickly covered in 2002, I think a lot of CPAs skipped, was conflicts of interest. It was added previously, but it's not an area that many CPAs looked at. 10.29 imposes a stricter conflict standard. And remember, this is one of the areas that the person in charge of tax advice is supposed to be looking at. Uh, shall not represent a client if there's a conflict of interest. And the standard is a lot closer to the legal standard than the standard that CPAs have generally worked under. You shall not represent a client if they're representing a Representation of one client will directly be adverse to another client. Should not, cannot represent the client, or there's a significant risk representation will be materially limited by responsibility to another client, former client, or third person, or by a personal interest. Sometimes in family situations, this is key that there's going to be potential problems. Uh, that's especially true if you decide, which probably a little Crazy to try and do in most cases, but nevertheless, if you decided to somehow try to represent both parties who are going through a divorce to continue to represent both parties, you may find yourself in a very serious conflict situation regarding certain tax matters. Uh, But that same conflict can come up in lots of other tax situations where the position for one person could have an impact on the results on another, or at least a potential result for when the IRS comes in and tries to match. Uh, certain documents or certain treatments together. Uh, you know, is there a conflict in representing both parties or is there a potential conflict? Is there a potential personal conflict in representing the party? And should you be concerned about having to opt out for that reason of taking on the client? Now, even if there's a conflict, you can still represent the client if you believe you'll be able to competently and diligent representation can be provided by you to the client. The representation is not prohibited by law. And each affected client gives informed written consent. Note that's informed written, which probably means that to be told about the other client. That may present you some confidentiality problems under your state accountancy law. Fair warning. You're not allowed to disclose confidential client information without the client's permission, but that may be the only way to disclose conflict would be to disclose confidential information. So you can be find yourself in a rock and a hard place in this area if somebody doesn't want to waive. And copies of written consent are retained for 36 months from the date of conclusion of representation of the affected client, and they must be provided to the IRS on request. So if the IRS asks to see the waiver, You need to be able to provide it. You have to provide it. That's required if you're going to represent people in a conflict situation. Now, to close out, we'll talk about subpart C, which is the sanction provisions. Now, remember, the state board still has impact. You lose your Arizona license. You're out if you're not licensed somewhere else. You just cannot do this. So you're out if you're not licensed in a state. However, the IRS, even if the Arizona Board doesn't want to do anything to you for this action, the IRS can still sanction you and limit your ability to practice for tax purposes, even when the state board did not take action. Now, the penalties they can take, 10.50a tells us they can censure, which is a public reprimand, suspend you, which is keep you from practicing for a certain period of time, or disbar you, basically throw you out. They can do any one of the three. The penalties are worse going down the line. They're allowed to do that if you hit one of the actionable items, and that's because you're incompetent or disreputable. That's an actionable item that allows them to do one of those three. You fail to comply with any regulation in Circular 230. Now, this is defined a little bit better shortly as to what failure to comply means. Or with intent to defraud, willfully and knowingly mislead or threaten a client or a prospective client. For any of those, you can be disbarred, you can be suspended, you can be censured. And I find the last one interesting that somehow that's not considered, apparently not considered disreputable because they had to list that one separately from disreputable. That sounded like relatively disreputable conduct to me, but I didn't write the rules, so we'll we'll stay with that. Now, the key next thing, what is what is incompetent or disreputable conduct? Well, 10.51 provides a laundry list of what is incompetence or disreputable conduct. But a key provision there is 10.51J, which prohibits knowingly and abetting any other person to practice for the Internal Revenue Service during a period of suspension, disbarment, or ineligibility of that person. There's a taint imposed that rubs off. And what that means is if you are disbarred or suspended, You may find it very difficult to get in any position where you come in contact with a CPA, an EA, or an attorney practicing before the IRS, since there is a risk that they may be deemed to attempt to to be attempting to help you practice before the IRS. So you may become effectively unemployable. That's probably not a good thing for many of us. So being acted upon by the IRS is not a good thing. Also, remember, you must notify the state board, Arizona State Board, if they suspend or disbar you. So this is not a real good thing. You'd prefer to avoid it. Well, what is 10.52, violation of regulations? We know about disreputable conduct, and we know we can't threaten our clients with intent to defraud. Well, the violation of regulation, actually 10.52 establishes three classes, shall we say, of regulations. The first class, which is applicable to only one, section 10.33, is essentially exempt from sanctions. You can't violate 10.33, but you can. At least for now. That's exempted. 10.34, 10.35, 10.36, and 10.37 are all subject to sanction if violated recklessly or through gross incompetence. That's the toughest standard because you can if you violate them willfully, recklessly, through gross incompetence, uh, you can be sanctioned. So ignorance is not a defense. That can be gross incompetence. Uh, that basically, or being reckless for not knowing these regulations, well, that's acting recklessly to just be intentionally ignorant. All other regulations are subject to a willful violation standard. The IRS has to show you willfully violated. In essence, ignorance is a defense because if you didn't know, it's tough to willfully violate something if you weren't aware or, you know, basically had no idea it was a violation. So that's the easiest standard. So that's the three levels we deal with. Now realize in the back of materials and in the back of the, uh, of the Slides here, we have a number of other provisions in circular B, in subpart B of Circular 230, dealing with the knowledge of a client's admission, due diligence, uh, prompt and dissolution of pending matters. One interesting one is a 10.26, a notary. A practitioner may not perform any official act as a notary public on any matter administered by the IRS, any matter for which a practitioner is employed as a counsel, attorney, or agent. Or any matter in which the practitioner is interested, you cannot be a notary. So just in case you are, realize that's a rule there that's actually in there. There are rules on unconscionable fees. You're not allowed to charge an unconscionable fee. And rules on contingent fees, more important. A separate rule of return of client records that's in addition to the one the Arizona State Board will apply against you. So you have two sets of rules to see what you have to hand back to the client. And by the way, the general rule is if either one says you have to give it back, you have to give it back. Uh, rules on solicitations of clients and various other items that you really should study at your leisure because 10.35 is not the only thing in here. If you have any questions, you can email me ed at hmtzcpas.com. This has been a presentation of the Arizona Society of CPAs, www.ascpa.com, to update account CPAs in the state of Arizona and wherever else may be listening. To the developments in Circular 230 this year. This presentation was made before a luncheon crowd and a luncheon CPE presentation on September 20th, 2005 and has not been updated for any developments since that date.